This is the MG Car Club Podcast with Wayne Scott and Adam Sloman. This week, we talk to Chris Marsh, son of the founder of Marcos Cars, about the anniversary of an incredible record set by his grandfather in a 1930 MGM type. Plus, we discuss why 80s cars are fetching more at auction and MG Motors' ambitious targets to sell a million cars globally before the MG centenary. The MG Car Club Podcast. Welcome then to another MG Car Club Podcast. Wayne Scott with you. I hope you're well. And uh, Adam's here as well. Hello. What have you been up to in the last week? Well, it's it's funny. It's one of those sort of, we've reached a point now where we've all been in this bizarre limbo for so long. Um, I've run out of things to do with the car. Um, I'm still not using my, my MGB. Um, I've washed Sarah's MGGS probably five times in the last three weeks so her car has never been that clean which is good because it needs to be clean because she's at work in it almost every day but um i'm starting to run out of things to do by the way we should say a big massive round of applause and cheers and stuff for the mggs who has seen sarah around all of her key working crucial duties during the pandemic hasn't it that car's done well over the last couple of weeks it has done really well i mean she's never used it as much as she has done since she changed her job to to be working in the in the community as a, as a district nurse and um yeah she's loving it she's um yeah it's it's doing her proud brilliant and just goes to show how great those new mgs are uh, i say new of course uh, what is it now four or five years now well the her gs is uh four years old this summer and um, four years old yeah i can honestly say hand on heart that we've never had any issues with it it's uh it's been a really good faithful bit of kit you know it's it's not pampered it's not polished and and you know treated to a to a good rub down with a stiff loofer every every week like a lot of classic <laughs> mgs are um but it's it's ridden hard and put away wet and it, it never lets her down so um yeah very pleased with it well this is what mg are doing and what they've got to do really to stay in the market and stay growing and we'll talk a little bit about their plans for growth in a moment but they've got to make really good solid reliable cars that just get families through and that is exactly what that car's done for you isn't it exactly well as you say we're in a bit of a weird limbo at the moment and really uh it's time to sort of look at where we are in terms of the club and our activities because just started to have the feeling that people are looking towards getting their cars out restrictions by the way if you're listening to this around the world and we know that many of you are uh, in the uk we've had some restrictions lifted we're a bit freer to do sort of trips outside of our area and we can drive for leisure and exercise as much as we like go to work if you really need to but most of us are still at home it's kind of as you say adam a weird limbo and all of this limbo caused us just to rewrite our advice and revisit some of the updates on coronavirus that have been posted on the mgcc website mgcc.co.uk is the place to keep in touch and up to date with everything that's happened with the latest advice around coronavirus and also the latest postponed dates for events cancellations and everything you need to know and we had quite a few questions didn't we Adam about whether it was safe to start using MGs in groups again and starting to run convoys and go and meet up 
but keep social distancing and the advice that we've got at the moment is that do not drive in groups or convoys by all means use your mg if it's your everyday transport or if you want to take it out for a drive to one of your exercises or or going down to the shops but we're just not ready are we to go driving about in groups no i mean it is really frustrating we all want to get out use our cars see our friends and you know we always talk about how amazing the social side of the club is and we're all desperate to go and do that but um yeah it's just a question of being patient and it is hard you know um it's my birthday this week and i don't want to spend my birthday in lockdown i want to see my mates i want to get out and have some fun with the car but can't do it so you know we've just got to, to we've just got to bide our time things will get better and just you know just keep smiling keep reading safety fast keep listening to me and wayne every week and uh, we'll get you through it absolutely and also i just kind of think adam that this pandemic has really hit hard and there are people really suffering out there people have lost their jobs people have lost their relatives people have died mm. because of this and i think it just kind of it feels like it strikes the wrong tone to start parading classic cars in big groups and feeling like we're having a lot of fun it just you know the the moment will come where we can all break out gather up with each other get out in our mgs and drive in big groups and go and have a great time that time will come absolutely it will but it's just not yet i don't think no i totally agree with you mate we've just got to like i said we've just got to bide our time just hang on for this this last little period because if we do start doing things that you know goes against government advice we are going to undo all that hard work that we've all put in over the last you know two or three months so yeah just just sit tight go and polish your wire wheels they take ages to clean go and do them again um and we'll get through it stick with us as adam says here on the mg car club podcast and we can carry on talking about mgs and uh one of the other things that came up through the news recently was quite a positive outlook from mg motor and this is interesting because most of the automotive industry at the moment are very uh nervous about the future most of their showrooms have been shut completely you know the car manufacturers are basically just releasing at the minute press releases on how they're getting their workers back to work how they're starting up production lines again but uh, very optimistically mg motor announced the plans for what they're calling mission 100 which is their strategy leading to the 100th anniversary of mg to hit 1 million sales globally question is can they do it what do you think well, it's an ambitious target, but if you look at the way MG have grown uh, under SIAC, um, there's no reason why they can't hit that target. And as the, the product range continues to diversify with a with a proper offering in electric vehicles, um, you know, more and more um, markets are being opened up every year by MG. Um, yeah, there's no reason why they couldn't do it. Well, interesting to see how the figures have stacked up so far. They say that last year MG sold 298,000 cars worldwide. That's just short of 300,000, so wow, a long way to go yet before hitting the million, including 139,000 in export markets, which I assume means us because they're exporting from China. Um, but they are ranking as number one in exports of a single car brand in China. So as you say, good growth in China. We know they're growing here in the UK. And I was interested to sort of see behind the press release exactly what their plan is 
for developing the range and what sort of cars we're going to expect to see out of them between now and 2023-2024 how they're going to change that and make it more appealing and basically they're going electric and they're going high tech including 5g connectivity which is very exciting but a little bit worrying for those of us who like driving autonomous driving technology is planned to be rolled out amongst the range i don't know about that what do you think <laughs> i'm not a fan of of autonomous driving and and things like if i you know if i had the money to go and buy a tesla the last thing i'd want is is autopilot and things like that um it's interesting um obviously you know coming from from china there is a, a heavy focus on on tech um and some would say gadgetry um but it's going to be interesting to see how they develop that and they've got some big heavyweight tech partners in in china i've seen cars um that have the mg have launched in china that have bizarre features on them that you know you can get a drone that can then track your car and film your car from from the air if you're a youtuber you know something like that would be really cool some of the videos you could produce with your car and have a drone follow you and do stuff like that would just be awesome not quite sure how it's going to help me get the kids to school um but yeah there's some really interesting um additions to the cars that come we've already seen it in the uk with um the hs and the zsev that have got mg's pilot system that offers a whole range of of tech um and safety features so it'll be really interesting to see how they develop it and of course we'll start to see stuff like that come on the cyberster absolutely and part of their strategy appears to include rolling out new digital purchasing experiences I'm not quite sure what that means, to be quite honest with you, just at the moment. But uh, I don't know whether you're going to be like picking your own car in a virtual reality 3D model or something, you know. Maybe. Maybe it's sort of Oculus Prime stuff. You have to put on a headset and build your own car. I'm not sure in, in virtual reality. We'll see. But it's all about attracting new audiences and younger buyers. And it seems that they've clocked onto the fact that what's really selling cars at the minute is, as you say, tech and gadgetry. Mm. I mean, at the end of the day, anything that brings people to MG can only be a good thing. You know, any MG enthusiast in the world should want MG to grow and should want MG to to be getting lots of people into into the community because someone goes out and buys a brand new MG HS, they might not necessarily have any idea about the MGB or the Midget or the TA, um, but that car can act as a gateway to those classic cars and to our community. And a community can only be better and can only be stronger if it gets to grow. So yeah, if, if hey, if offering Apple CarPlay on a brand new MG makes someone buy an MG3 over, say, a Skoda Fabia, then I'm all for it absolutely i mean it's all right me and you sit here saying about we don't understand 5g in a car and autonomous technology and all that sort of stuff but i use q2050 engine oil as aftershave over here i'm not the, <laughs> i'm not the demographic going on they've got to build cars that people want to buy and that's what is going to fund them making sexy stuff like that cyberster we discussed on the podcast last week well, exactly. I mean, it does make me wonder where we're going to be in the next couple of years. I mean, I've got a 10-year-old daughter and a 7-year-old son. And, I mean, they're, they're mad about cars. They're, they're well into their cars. But I do wonder what sort of cars Lily and James will be driving when they get there, when they're old enough. Because, you know, my first car was a was a 800 quid uh, rusty 1986 Mini with a choke. Um, you know, people, a lot of people driving today wouldn't even know what a choke was for. 
it's um, it's going to be really interesting to see how that picture develops. But again, for me, provided my kids can go and buy an MG when they get there, I'm happy. It'll be interesting to see what happens to these cars when they reach the second-hand car market and to see, A, whether you can buy them as second-hand cars and, B, whether they're affordable or even if they last long enough. That's the problem. These batteries have a certain shelf life and they're not exactly cars you can fix up like you and I did um, with our rusty cars we had at uh, college and stuff. So it'll be interesting. I did notice when we posted this story on the MG Car Club Facebook page this mission 100 strategy the usual stuff came out about why does the mg car club support these chinese built mgs i can basically answer that question very very quickly and that is if you meet any of the mg car club members that own their mg3s and mg6s or whatever and absolutely love them they are enthusiasts of the brand they love that car like it's a member of their own family and in many cases they have names and are members of families these guys (laughs) you know a passion that someone has for their mg3 that really loves it is just the same as the passion that someone has for a 1950s mga and that's why they're in the club and that's why we need to encourage them into the club just because someone goes out and buys you know a brand new mg3 or or they'd love their their zs or their hs it doesn't mean they're going to come around to your house and take away your mga and destroy it or it doesn't mean that their mga is any less valid or their mg3 is any less valid you know i'm so proud that we still have mg as a as a living breathing mark that anyone can go into an mg dealer and say i'll take that one please and hopefully have the same experience with their mg3 or their their hs their gs that that we have been so fortunate enough to have with our mgbs with our midgets you know it's we're so lucky that we can still have people come and join our community and be part of our of our world so yeah definitely totally agree with you mate as John Day said when we interviewed him on an earlier episode of the MG Car Club podcast, by the way, you can listen to all of our past episodes online at mgpodcast.uk if you're listening to us via iTunes or something like that. Uh, they are all up there on the website. Just have a look back through our past back catalogue. Some great interviews there. And John Day, the president of the club, said something really pertinent, I think, and that was that what gives him real pleasure is when he sees someone turn up to an MG Car Club event in an MG3 or a six or or whatever and they discover an mg midget or an mga for the first time and they've never seen one before or never realized that that car was linked to theirs and the discovery of that heritage and the discovery of the cars that we all love is something special to watch and i think that sums up why all mgs should be an inclusive part of any car club it's got the mg badge on the front if you're an mg car club member we're all part of the same family we're all as mad as each other basically is what we're saying (laughs) and uh uh, there's uh, other mad people that uh still in the pandemic are buying cars adam mainly at auction and there was something i picked up in the classic car press uh hello to all the guys at classic car weekly by the way david simister the editor there good friend of ours and um they ran a story front cover story very recently about the fact that um, 1980s or post-1980 cars seem to be doing really well at auction. And they've done some analysis into auction results held over the two months of the lockdown, which shows that post-1980 cars and British sports cars in particular 
like ours, our MGs, are selling more consistently at auction for more than their estimated prices. And they pick out some examples here. So if you want to go really modern, they found at H&H &H auctions a 156 GTA Alfa Romeo that went for six grand more than its upper estimate. <gasps> you couldn't give them away recently. They're fetching really good money now. They also picked out a Triumph Herald that had done very well at a vintage and classic auction selling uh, for £3,400. This was a restoration project, smashing the original expectations of £2,500. Uh, that's a 1968-1360 Herald. And uh, they're basically going on to say that the interest that's coming into the auction houses at the moment is for either British sports cars, and they singled out MGs, MG midgets and MGBs in particular, and also post-1980 cars, and some really quite modern ones like X300, XJ6s, Jaguars, and XJ40s, and that 156 Alpha that I mentioned, some real what we call modern classics, I guess. And I just it got me thinking, really, about what that means for the market, what that means for MG in particular. Obviously, it means that if you find yourself a really good, say, MG Maestro or Montego, then they're going to start to become worth real money now, judging on these patterns and these trends. Furthermore, as some of those cars raise in price, let's hope, and I'm sure it's going to happen, that those Zs start to come back in price. So you get a really nice low mileage Z uh, with real good condition, real good history or lovely story behind it. That's going to start pulling those prices up as well. And it got me thinking why this might be the case. What's happening here to drive this? And I came up with sort of three things that we need to perhaps consider. And that is that the result of the pandemic has been that we've seen the economy crash, basically. We've seen stocks and shares in particular suffer particularly hard. And if you paid any attention to the Sunday Times rich list recently, you'll know that billions of billions, something like 54 billion has been wiped off their rich list in the way that they calculate how much people are worth. So arguably some of the people that have been hardest hit are those high net worth individuals, to use the banking phrase. And those are the people, of course, that were investing in classic cars. Now it might just be that they're starting to cool off now and sit back from the market. Those guys aren't buying MG midgets and MGBs. They're enthusiast cars like you and me that turn up to car clubs and go to shows and use them and stuff you know that's not their bag and of course so you know maybe they're leaving the market and then i also thought most of those auctions that ran during lockdown were running online they were running digital auctions and that has got to affect the demographic of the people turning up and bidding on those cars to a certain degree and that lower age demographic is obviously going to be hankering probably for more post-1980 cars or British sports cars like MGBs, midgets, that they can easily maintain, easily buy and easily learn. Interesting, I thought, just to see how the effects of the pandemic have changed things. And I think from what I can infer uh, into their results there, it seems more enthusiasts are coming to take over the market. And interesting to see what Richard Hudson Evans, who wrote the piece in Classic Car Weekly, said. He said, um, there are exceptions to the rule, but the cars that have been outperforming their estimate do tend to be the more modern classics because they're seen as safer buys. They're more likely to be original, low mileage, unrestored and in good condition. And that's being reflected in the prices. I think it goes a little bit deeper than that into who is buying cars generally. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think if there's one good thing that does come out of all this, if we can get 
you know, the market back into the hands of of sort of real enthusiasts that get out and use their cars, then that, that would be a good thing. I mean, it's great the values have gone up f- sort of right across the board for so many different cars. But it does mean that some of these cars that are changing hands for big money at auction, it means they get squirreled away in collections and we don't get to see them. Um, so if we can get more enthusiasts involved and, and the, the market does sort of shift towards those post-1980 cars, then great. I mean, as far, I wish I'd known it was going to go that way when I sold my EFI Maestro um, about three or four years ago for, for next to nothing. Um, but uh, yeah, now is the time for me to go and find that warehouse and start filling it with uh, ZRs and ZSs. Absolutely. It's a great news for clubs as well if it is a more enthusiast-led market again because it's enthusiasts, the people who buy those lower-in-the-market cars that are the ones that drive the industry, really. They're the ones that break stuff, use oil, <laughs> need parts. Yeah, yeah. Because generally speaking, we tend to use our cars as enthusiast lot. And, of course, they join car clubs because they want to get out and experience stuff, meet people, go on holidays and trips and get a lifestyle behind it. So it's only good news, really. The MG Car Club Podcast. The MG Car Club, the mark of friendship. To take advantage of our many membership benefits, access to our centers and registers, and to receive your copy of Safety Fast magazine, join us now at mgcc.go.uk. Memories from Kimber House with Adam Sloman. In 2014, the MG Car Club, in conjunction with Abingdon Town Council, officially opened the MG Garden. Situated on Marcham Road, just a short walk from Kimber House, it serves as another reminder of MG's indelible mark on the town. The garden features a seating arrangement and an MG octagon set in paving, together with seven display boards detailing the history of Abingdon from the opening of the factory in 1929 through to the end of production in 1980. It's the perfect spot for a picnic after your visit to Kimber House. Sharing your passion for MG on the MG Car Club podcast. Well, next on the MG Car Club podcast, very special interview, actually, uh, talking to Chris Marsh. Now, if that surname rings a bell, that's because... He's the son of Jem Marsh, who partnered with aerodynamicist Frank Costin to form Marcos Cars during the late 1950s, early 1960s. Welcome, first of all, Chris, to the MG Car Club podcast. Well, thank you very much for um, inviting me. It's great to be here. You might be wondering why we're talking about Marcos Cars on the MG Car Club podcast. Uh, well, it will all become very clear in a moment because uh, today as we uh, sit here having a chat, it is a very special anniversary for someone in Chris's family, which we'll tell the story of in just a moment. But Chris, I can't have you on the podcast without just having a chat about the history of Marcos. We're all petrol heads here, and it's interesting to have someone on who's directly linked to a family who really did make their mark on the automotive history of the UK. Tell us a little yeah. bit about how that all began and your memories of it as a child. Obviously, my father started up... Um Marcos, he, he, he first of all started uh, racing um, an Austin 7 engined uh, thing called a Speed X, which uh, against people like Colin Chapman and such like. So there, there's a bunch of them all together making these um, handmade, I don't know, homemade cars. Um, and from that, he went on to start producing cars and met Frank Costin. Hence how you got the name Marcos. You, you got M-A-R from my surname, Marsh. 
and Costin uh, COS. So that's how the name Marcus came along. And my father just um, started producing these cars with, with Frank. Uh, the most, not famous, but unusual thing about the car was that it, that it had a, a wooden chassis. And the wooden chassis was a monocoque. So as we know, monocoques of today, they're, they're carbon fiber. Uh, which hence I, I, I've been building carbon fiber cars as well. So, but the, the, the monocoque was plywood. Um, it, from that plywood chassis came along with, with the aluminium chassis of, that Formula One cars used later on, uh, you know, later on in, in, in that era. So it, it was very interesting times. Well, it all, as you mentioned, started with Speedex, and that was based in Luton. How then did it end up that Marcos was founded first in Dolgethley in Wales, and then, of course, it later moved to Wiltshire as well, didn't it? It did move around quite a lot in those early days. I expect the tax man was chasing my father around the country. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me. You know, building low-volume cars, well, any car, is quite a tricky thing. You know, you need the finance to do it. And building a car in Wales, obviously, the, the overheads are a bit cheaper um, than being in Luton. Uh, also, the Adams brothers, um, who, who Dennis Adams, who designed the car, um, they, they, they wanted to do it in Wales. So they found an old place and they started building it in Wales. And that's how it became to be built in Wales. And then... We moved down to Bath. Um, we had, the father had a backer, and the backer um, put up the factory, if you like, which was in Greenland Mills, and um, helped my father a lot, a guy called Grenville Cavendish. And that's why we ended up in Bradford-on-Avon. So uh, I think you, these car companies, you know, a bit like TVR, ended up in Blackpool because Peter Wheeler was up there. So these car companies go where the finances are almost it's been a challenging story the marcos story hasn't it and um there's a there's a few myths that sort of surround the company that would be good to have your take on one was in 1972 when there was this supposed sort of mass jumble sale to try and raise money of all the parts and presses and machinery <laughs> is, is that true story yeah 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 you know i was a lot younger obviously you know um you, you do anything you know you, you you've got this dream to build a car company and Back in the, the early 70s, it folded. And I think my father was trying everything to, to raise the money to, to keep it going. Um, yeah, and there was a mass jumble sale, literally, of all sorts of stuff to try and keep it going. But, you know, back then, again, the, the, the 70s, early 70s, it was quite tough, you know, financially. So you when you have a love or a passion for something, you always want to keep it going, and uh, that's what he was trying to do. Eventually, you took over and ran it through the 1980s, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, um, late late 80s. I worked there for a little bit. I mean, I did an apprenticeship to kick off with a company called TT Workshops that um, used to renovate BMW 328s and all those sort of cars. And then I, I went off to America and, and run race teams, and I won things like Sebring as a crew chief. Uh, and then my father gave me a call and said, I was living in Florida, Palm Beach, running this race team. He said, uh, 
that do you want to come and run it so i went from uh, palm beach to westbury <laughs> in big 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 nissan huts running this company and uh, yeah that was the late 80s um very interesting um i was very lucky because uh, harvey jones did a thing on morgan uh maybe a lot of people will remember it when he did this piece on morgan and tell it, telling morgan to produce more cars um, and uh, one of my customers saw it, a guy called Philip Hume, um, who owned a company called Computer Center. And Philip came on board, basically, and, and took the company forward uh, where, from being a kit car company to building fully built cars. We, um, it was fantastic times because, obviously, in 95, we, we took the company to Le Mans and we had two LM600s that we raced. Um, and it was, it was just brilliant, you know, and I was very lucky that, um, I drove the car over the line at Le Mans in 95 and with a guy called David Leslie and Francois Migaud, who's an ex Formula One driver for Graham Hill, for two very experienced drivers. And, uh, they asked if I wanted to finish the race and I went, yeah, okay, why not? So those times are brilliant they were brilliant times they were very successful uh, british gt cars as well and uh, they were running yeah. uh, other le mans 24 hours with privateer teams as well from what i remember that's it yeah no yeah a guy called a dutch guy called coroiser who did a lot mm. for marcos as well um and a guy called callum Lockie. that the, the two of them won the british gt championship um, which was great, uh, and yeah, a lot of privateers started racing them, and, and they became very quick. So uh, it, it was great, and we also had a what do you call a one make race series, um, a bit like TVR Tuscans. We had the Marcus Mantis um, challenge, and that that was very successful as well with the running it through the BRDC, um, and that that was a lot of fun as well. You mentioned TVR there. You did at one point have a lot of TVR engineers working for you, didn't you? Well, I got on well with um, Peter Wheeler. You know, I only used to see him at motor shows and things, but we always have a bit of a laugh, you know, in the evenings after the motor show's done. You always go to nightclub or something. (laughs) Talking a few years ago, and Peter and I, we we used to have some good fun. Um, uh, Again, I admire the guy. It was amazing what what he did for that company. Um, you know, this is like my father, he's not, no longer with us, but you know, th- those guys, um, do a lot. I mean, I, I took over Marcos and I'm not saying it was on his knees, but it, it, it was in a sorry state. And, and with myself and Philip Hume, we pulled it back up and my father was around as well. So, you know, his, his advice, you know, because you can't beat experience was brilliant. So, you know, we, we pulled it back up, but it, it, it it's a tough old tough old gig can i say that yeah mm-hmm. it's a tough gig doing this you know same with mg you know the the company itself you know went up and down up and down and again it was a shame that it it, it went but obviously it's back again in a in a different format but mm-hmm. yeah it's it's tough well uh, fun. 
Absolutely. And it's of fun that we need to talk now and, of course, of MG, because going back even further into your family history, something very, very important happened 90 years ago today. And we talk also in the 90th anniversary of the MG Car Club. So it all ties in very nicely to what we've been chatting about on the podcast over the last few episodes. Um, But uh, your grandfather was big into trialing, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He he, uh, did a lot of trialing. You know, it's 90 years ago. So for me, um, obviously I wasn't around. I don't remember it. But the history and things like this are fantastic. He did a a trial a hundred times. He went up and down um, Beggar's Roost um, and did a lot. A lot of MGP guys will know a lot more about this than I will. But um, they did time trials and... Beggar's Roost as a, as a hill climb, or it, 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 they, they call it a hill hill trial, but it, it, the, the the hill was actually a track, yeah, <laughs> a, a beaten up track, and yeah, it went up and down, up and down a hundred times, mm. and I think it got the record or something like that, and yeah, it it, it was brilliant. So yeah, Kenneth Marsh, my grandfather, um, which is where the genes come from, I guess, you know, the, the fact that we all all three of us raced my father myself my grandfather different formats although my my i didn't know this till you guys got in touch that my my, my i was reading through some history my grandfather also did the rac rally <laughs> i never knew that so uh, it, it's yeah but it, it's fantastic the 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 mg went up and down up and down and and got this record which is amazing it's, it's brilliant Absolutely. Well, Beggar's Roost was included on the RAC rally in 1956, which was quite weird because, as you say, it was yeah. a a trialling stage and uh, was used up until very recently, actually, on the what's now known as the Exeter Trial, uh, which is run by the Motorcycle Club, the MCC, who run now the Exeter Trial, the Land's End Trial and the Edinburgh Trial. Still those original competitions that Kimber built the MGs to compete in in the 1930s to so much success. And I've actually driven yeah. Beggar's Roost myself, and it is still yeah. very difficult, even by today's standards, with today's machinery, it is really difficult. If you can picture uh, a one-in-three hill that winds its yeah. way over rocks and tree roots through a sort of wooded glade forest in the middle of Devon, you've kind of got the picture. But this was the yeah, 1930s, yeah. and this is a 1930s MG's driving. Phenomenal. Yeah, I know. And, and apparently in... I think 56 when he did the RAC rally, not many of the cars got up the hill. <laughs> so, and that was several years on, you know, this is, we're talking 1930 when he did this. And, um, you can see the, the, uh, well, yeah, obviously you can't see the pictures cause we're, we're on a podcast, but in the pictures, the car looks pretty, it looks pretty, no, I wouldn't say mean, but it's got fatter tires for the year and everything. And yeah, it, it's, it's amazing that, he did it a hundred times as well, you know. Um, I think they stopped once to do some stuff to the engine. I don't know what, but yeah, it, it was brilliant. Well, we will put so, the pictures that you've sent through on the uh, podcast page at mgpodcast.uk and uh, we'll put the uh, images alongside the player on the podcast page there so you can go and have a look at it. This was done overnight as well, wasn't it? It started about quarter past two in the morning, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They started at quarter past two and they finished at 10 or something and in yeah 
So yeah, well, uh, I don't know why overnight. <laughs> I guess it's a bit strange. Maybe it's cooler. I don't know. It's, it, it, you know, because like you race at Le Mans, it's a lot cooler at night. So and it's easier on the car. So where it, that was a reason, I don't know. No idea. But yeah. Very interesting that they did it at night as well. And when he wasn't throwing uh, 1930M-type MGs up hill climbs, what did uh, Kenneth Marsh do as a living? He had a uh, like a, uh, a store in in Bristol. So basically, um, I don't know, he's like House of Fraser, obviously just one store, but that sort of thing. And uh, that's what he did, but um, his passion was always cars. So... Um, yeah, it was very interesting. It, it, I didn't know him that well. It's quite weird because um, my grandparents got they split up, which was very uh, again very unusual for that time. And mm. I knew my grandmother more than I knew my grandfather. But he, it, whenever I went round there um, with my father in a Marcos, he was always really interested in the car and what engine did it have and how did it go. So yeah, it, it was um, it, it was fantastic that. Um, you know, I've gone back into this. Um, to be honest, it's only about a year ago I knew he did this. <laughs> so, oh, really? You know, what I mean? <laughs> it was something. Um, uh, my father passed away, and then, and then um, his wife Lynn gave me all this stuff, and I started looking through it. And I thought, "Wow, this is weird." Yeah, I've never seen. It. And it's fantastic that MG managed to do it as well. Brilliant. Well, it was the early days of the MG uh, Motor Company. They really did make their name in small sporting cars, and the M-Type that your grandfather would have taken up Beggar's Roost was one of the most successful cars for Cecil Kimber at the time. And they really did quite unusually, actually, for someone who was making road cars and not dedicated trialling cars, really did make their name in trialling in those days. So I guess it was the in-vogue sport to have been a part of in motorsport in well, the 1930s. Yeah. Very popular, wasn't it? I mean, it was amazingly, in, in that era, it was very popular to go and watch it. You know, I, I've never actually done trialling, so, so I know you lean over, don't you, the passenger and all this sort of thing. Is yeah. that right? I ba- mean, you, bounce you've up done and it. down. Yeah, bounce. Well, so, basically, the... It, it's a race against yourself there's no timing involved Uh, all there are is observers on sections and you typically on the extra trial for example you'll start 6 p.m from a start and you'll run navigation stretches in between the different sections so we call them sections in trialing and beggar's roost is a section on the extra trial and effectively you get pulled up to the line where the section begins and you have to make progress up that section without once stopping uh, or heading backwards or anything like that you must keep forward motion at all times the only time you stop is if you have what's called a restart basically you have to put at least one axle into a designated box marked out by cones you wait for the marshal to drop his flag and you must then restart up the hill and it basically makes difficult hills even worse (laughs) yeah because you you haven't got the momentum i guess absolutely you have to stop and then kick off again absolutely and it's usually (laughs) dug into deep ruts where you know the hundred other competitors before you have all dug it out trying to get off the line they're the car slightly higher or or, because obviously the axles must get pretty close to the the deck or is that not not the case yeah absolutely so what you can't have is four-wheel drive and what you can't have is the silhouette of a road car that has been altered 
basically but uh, right. yeah, what yeah. you can do is you can and what we all do is raise the cars to get more ground clearance um, obviously there's yeah. a lot to do with tyre pressures and the movement of weight so you're always trying to get as much weight over the driving axle as you can so my trials yeah. car for example has a boot line with lead to try and get some more weight <laughs> over the axle and um, it's it's a science in motorsport of its own really it's very unique yeah, the first ever trial I ever did and I've done circuit racing, I've done rallying, I've done every form of motorsport there is going. And I can remember yeah. sitting at the start of my very first observed section, as they're called in the books for the trials, not knowing, A, what to do, and B, being absolutely petrified. Because all you can see in the <laughs> darkness is red taillights peering into what looks like the sky and engines <laughs> screaming through forests through the middle of the night and there is no other form of motorsport like it it is the most scared you'll be at 15 mile an hour and fantastic right. that the sport is still running uh today and, yeah uh, a legacy to all those people like your grandfather kenneth marsh who broke that record uh, all those years well, ago thank you 90 thank years ago so uh, chris Lovely to talk to you. Tell us a little bit about yourself before you leave us and your role in the uh, motoring industry today. What are you up to? So what I'm doing is I'm doing, um, I've got a classic car restoration business um, called chrismarshclassics.com. <laughs> better say that. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I do I do MGs as well, So which is great. And we sell them as well. So um, along with Marcus's um, and Morgan's. So that's what I'm doing. And we also do the, the Le Mans Classic. Um, we've got a car that my father raced in at Le Mans back in 68, something like that. And uh, I drove for a Swedish team a couple of years ago. They asked if I'd drive it at Le Mans Classic. So I've got, I loved it so much. I went and bought the car so, um, from the guy and he's still going to drive with me um, when it, comes around next year now so that, that's what i'm up to i'm, I'm running the, the odd race car um just applying my trade in a bit let's say a more civilized way is probably the way to say it you know rather than trying to make cars build cars um and it's a lot of fun a lot of fun enjoying it a lot uh and it's great you know it's, it's just one of those things i love it <laughs> the marcos name is still going and the heritage is safe uh, the trademark is is run by one of the suppliers of parts for them now isn't it yeah that's it yeah i mean it's still it's still around there's a guy called roy mcmath that does um all, all the parts for us um and yeah it, it it's still going um whether there be a Marcus ever again, I don't. I don't know. Not in this day and age, unless, unless it's an electric car or something, which you know isn't quite what what you'd want it to be. But the, the way things are going, um, you know, maybe, but not at the moment. Well, if we ever see a new Marcos and it does turn out to be an electric car or whatever, one thing that it must have, uh, Chris, and that is a very, very small steering wheel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my father liked a nice small wheel, which gave him a lot of, um, I don't know, when you're going into a corner, you've got a lot of feel, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the MG oh. Car Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. And, uh, yeah, thanks a lot. The MG Car Club Podcast. Safety Fast, the magazine of the MG Car Club. Get your copy now by joining us at mgcc.co.uk.
We've got some brand new merchandise as well to tell you all about in the shop. Inika, who runs the MG Car Club shop, keeps finding amazing stuff, actually. She, I don't know where she finds it all, but uh, I want all of it. And my Christmas list is getting just longer and longer. And this time she's got an MG Garage sign, which is like a wooden street sign, which goes in your garage. I like it. I don't know about putting it in the garage. I think I need it in my hallway. But this is a nice piece, isn't it? Yeah, they're really nicely made. They're proper, like, thick cut wood um, and they're all crafted in the UK and they're really nicely made um, I'm uh, I'm looking at getting either one of those or one of the MG parking only uh, steel signs that we've got as well so there's a couple of good options there fantastic and one of my favorite little chaps MG Benji he's back in stock yes and if you uh, find me on Facebook, by the way, uh, this is there's a picture of me. My profile picture, Adam, is me cuddling MG Benji at MG Live. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you and Benji, you've got a special relationship, haven't you? Yeah, we, we've bonded that weekend. <laughs> I won't tell you how, but you can have a cuddly toy of your own now, an MG Car Club mascot, MG Benji. And we'll put links to all of the uh, places on the shop where you can buy this and the uh, description of the podcast at mgpodcast.uk and uh, car covers from Hamilton Classics ever popular and of course with our classic MGs doing less miles than we would like them to do at the moment absolutely essential that you have a really good car cover on your car doesn't matter whether it's outdoors or indoors car covers can really protect your car and we sell the hamilton classics range that can actually be branded with mg logos of your choice they can put basically anything onto the hamilton classics car covers and the good thing is we shall have some really sound advice from alistair flack from hamilton classics on this very podcast the mg car club podcast on next week's episode alistair will be coming onto the show to tell us what we need to look at when we're buying car covers and other things that we need to make sure our cars are safe and looked after and preserved if we're storing them for long periods of time so that's next week on the mg car club podcast oh that'll be good because um, at the moment my B is under a selection of old duvets, sheets and blankets so uh, when I do get the car it's an absolute nightmare to unpack it and then put it all back over so yeah it'd be good to hear what, um, what Alistair's got to say so I can order myself a decent quality cover looking forward to that and looking forward to hearing from you of course don't forget on our contact page mgpodcast.uk we've now got a voice recorder where you can leave us a message we've had the comments underneath the podcast episodes on the podcast page over on our website there for quite a while but we've added the voice recorder we want to get you on this show with me and adam it's no good us two rattling along and talking about stuff we want you on as well telling us your stories and you can do it really easily just go to the contact page at mgpodcast.uk click the little voice recorder on there and leave us your message tell us where you're listening to the podcast tell us what car you drive how long you've owned it and any amazing memories or stories that you've got associated with your mg we'd like to hear from you please until next week it's goodbye from me it's goodbye from me see you guys bye subscribe to receive new episodes of the mg car club podcast at mgpodcast.uk Thank you.